Hey, this is The Mouth Off with Kyone Wolf, storytelling from the Mark Twain House. I'm Kyone Wolf. This episode's storytellers have a little bit of an inside track in my professional and personal life. First up is Colin McEnroe. In addition to being a columnist with Hearst, Connecticut, author of the memoir My Father's Footprints, and Lose Weight Through Great Sex with Celebrities, The Elvis Way, which is definitely not a memoir. He's also my friend and the host of the aptly named Colin McEnroe Show on Connecticut Public Radio, where we work together. Here he is with his story from June of 2013, from the Father's Day edition of The Mouth Off. So many of these stories happen not too far from where I'm standing right now. And when my father was sort of near the end of his life, within days of the end of his life, we took him down to the Hughes convalescent home. And uh, it was winter, and he was wearing this big parka with a hood on it. And we unzipped the hood and bundled him out of that and put him in the bed. And this attendant from Hughes came over to greet him, to welcome him to the home. She said, how do you do? I'm Anna. And he said, how do you do? I'm Santa, but they took my suit. And she looked at me and she said, is he joking or is he disoriented? And I said, welcome to my life. Because <laughs> uh, that was sort of a big question all through my, my life with my father. Also, just a few blocks from where we're sitting right now, in 1947, there was a boarding house on Asylum Hill. Uh, there was a very peculiar man living in the boarding house, and he told all of the people uh, who lived there that he was a playwright. And, I mean, everybody at a boarding house has some kind of story. And he was actually collecting all of their stories, as it turned out. But no one really believed him. On one day in 1947, on page one of the New York Times, it was announced that two Broadway producers had each bought plays by this man uh, who was living in a boarding house on Asylum Hill in Hartford working for United Aircraft. Um, that was my father. There was the New York papers. They couldn't even find anything to compare this to. I mean, it just, like, never had happened. One of the plays involved leprechauns, fairies. You know, some people grow up around horses or guns or Jack Russell Terriers. I grew up around fairies and unproduced plays. Those are the two things that I grew up around a lot, actually. Little people were very, very real to my father. They're very real to the Irish in general anyway. I mean, I don't know exactly in what way they're real. And in fact, Yeats says they have every charm except conscience. Uh, and they'll do good to the good and evil to the evil. The, the key is to never speak of them uh, directly at all. If you have to say anything about them, call them the gentry, which is actually what the Irish do call them. Or, or There's an Irish name, Doan Maith, which means the good people. But you don't talk too much about the leprechauns or the fairies or the little people. But they, were, they loomed large in, in all of my father's calculations about life. And there's even, um, in one of the unproduced plays, there's a, a character uh, named Snowbird Toomey, who actually appears in a couple of his plays, a typical Irish character. And, and there's a woman at his boarding house Oh, who's in interrogating him because he's seen a gnome. She said, well, well, did it look evil? He says, it had no reason to look evil. And she said, well, how long have you been seeing gnomes? And he says, you're twisting it all around. You're making it sound like I see gnomes when they're not there. Because I only see gnomes when they're there. <laughs> um, so in one of my father's plays, there's sort of a great moment of exploring the afterlife. And it involves Snowbird Toomey and his sidekick, this guy named Willie. And they're, they're talking about, they've just come back from the funeral of one of their ne'er-do-well friends, Dennis. Suddenly they hear a knock. And Snowbird says, Dennis, is that you? Does two knocks mean yes? And Willie said, well, you know, two knocks could mean no. You know, we have to find out. It doesn't necessarily mean yes, because we could have asked him whether it means yes or not, and he could be knocking no. And Snowbird says, Dennis, what's yes? What's no? 
And he turns to Willie and says, I hope you're satisfied. And then he says, Dennis, are you in hell? Are you miserable? Are you repentant? Is your spirit bereft and forlorn? Do you miss alcohol and women? Do you miss racehorses and poker? Is there any point in us praying for you? <laughs> One of them looks at the other and goes, see, he's fine, he's fine. <laughs> so this is sort of theology uh, for us. And, and my father had this sort of long, ongoing battle with religion. He claimed he was an atheist. Really, was, he was a heretic. He wanted, his real goal in life was to argue with all religion and then eventually have a, an argument with God and win because he thought everybody was kind of wrong. When I was growing up, he uh, overheard my best friend Ruthie Safferstein tell me that there was no such thing as Santa Claus, and he told her that Moses was a fake. Um, this caused a lot of trouble in our neighborhood. Uh, and when he was near the end of his life, I used to, he used to think a lot about religion. He would think all the time about religion. In fact, when I was growing up, I asked if I could go to church because my parents, neither one of them went to church, but my friends went to church. I said, would you start taking me to church? And he said, absolutely. Well, it turned out he meant this literally. He would drive up to the church, let me out of the car, and then drive away. Um, and he would just sort of, I was like this latchkey Protestant. He would just sort of enroll me in various religions. Um, and then he would go home and he would spend a year or two reading up on them. He was a real polymath. And so he would read up on the religion and try to figure out everything that was wrong with it. So he enrolled me variously as a Presbyterian or Universalist, Congregationalist, Episcopalian. Then he would go home and read up on these doctrines. He would show up once a year, like, you know, on Easter Sunday or something, and the ministers learned to fear him. He would be coming across the room during the coffee hour, <laughs> armed with all this sort of doctrinal information, ready to poke holes in everything. It was almost like you see this pirate ship sailing towards them. So I gradually realized he was enrolling me in these religions simply so that he could torture their ministers. <laughs> um, anyway, this whole idea, this argument going on with religion, just, it, it continued right to the end of his life. And uh, he was always asking questions about God and making fun of God and saying various... And so one day I was, he was in a wheelchair near the end of his life, and I used to take him out on these little jaunts. And we were at the Wadsworth Athenaeum, and I was pushing him around in his wheelchair. And people were sort of looking. Oh, isn't that nice? They could see kind of father and son. And, you know, I'm taking him past all the paintings. And, of course, many of the paintings do have religious themes. And he was also kind of at that point, you know, he was nearing the end of his life, and he wasn't really particularly good at modulating his voice. And so he talked kind of loud at times. And so we're probably passing a scene of Madonna and Child or something like that. And uh, he said, uh, what I can't understand is if God wanted a son, why didn't he just make one? Why did that poor girl have to get knocked up? And, you know, like, heads are kind of swiveling around and looking at us. And, um, when he was born, uh, his mother was uh, um, uh, sort of a little bit old to be having a child at that time. And she actually sent him back to the hospital, not because there was anything wrong with him. She just sent him back to the hospital. So that wasn't a good beginning, you know. And I sort of, existentially, I think he had a lot of problems going on. And, but I didn't really know what was haunting him so much then. But he was a troubled and, and, and just storm-tossed person. And so when I was 14, um, and I'll skip over the details, but he made a pretty significant attempt on his own life. I visited, I came to the hospital 
and he was still in a coma, and it was a very Promethean scene. The medicine that he used to this, used to try this, had gotten into his central nervous system, which is causing him. He was tied down to the bed, just writhing around in the bed in this coma. It was a kind of an alarming thing. I didn't know what had happened. He hadn't left a note. Um, I was just uh, terrified out of my mind that he would wake up and try to do this again. And he did wake up. I remember he looked at the fact that he was tied down, and he said, "What? What is this?" And I explained, and he go, he said. It's medieval. And he said, you know, I got up, I woke up this morning and I could see across out of the window, across the alley there to a parking garage. He was at Hartford Hospital. He said, I could see out the window to that parking garage. He said, and I could, I could see that the parking garage was beautiful. It was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen in my life. And that's kind of who he became after this. He, uh, he lived another 30 years. All of the fey and wonderful little people seeing antic things uh, about him were preserved. And he got to meet his grandson, whom he adored, and whom he completely incorporated into that world of little people. One day when Joey was two, I came to the apartment where Joey had been staying. And he and his, father, his grandfather, Bob, would take things apart. It was, he was very into little devices and things like that. And my father was talking, looking at Joey, little tiny two-year-old kid is this, as though this were some apparition that he, you know, had seen in front of him. And he said, Mr. Dwarf, do you know where the other half of this is? So clearly been welcomed into the world of little people. But what really struck me about the whole thing was that, and not that I recommend this as a self-help technique, but it really, this is what he needed to do. You know, this is who he was. He really needed to go right up to that chasm, look into the abyss and come back out. And the great, great irony of this is that the world's most diehard heretic, the most oppositional anti-Christian who ever lived, is the only man I know who ever experienced a resurrection. And so, Dad, are you here? Are you fine? Thank you. That story totally slayed me then, and it still does. Thank you so much, Colin. Next up is Jennifer LaRue. She's an editor at Connecticut Explored, a children's book author and publicist, and she's the director of marketing and public relations at the Mark Twain House and Museum. She's also the reason I have such an easy time putting this show on. Anyway, here's her story from our January 2017 show, and the theme was First Things First. 25 years ago this month, I was doing the same job I'm doing now, but way back at the Wadsworth Athenaeum. And uh, that year, we were celebrating our 150th anniversary. It was a big deal. And we had a lot of events planned for that year, including, right in the beginning of the year, a visit from then First Lady Barbara Bush. And I don't know how it happened that I came to be the point person at the museum coordinating her visit, but that was what happened. So one day, I was, I was sitting in the conference room with all my colleagues, planning all the details, logistics, and things for Barbara Bush's visit. When my assistant, Monique, came into the room with one of those pink message slips where it says, you know, what your phone message is. Now, that was really unusual um, because Monique was an awesome assistant and she knew not to interrupt me in a meeting like that unless it was something really, really important. So she came in with the slip and handed it to me and I glanced at it and it said, Jennifer, call your folks. And that was unusual because I had lived in Connecticut just a few years by that time. I had moved there from Rockville, Maryland, where I grew up and where my parents still lived. And my parents were kooky, but they knew not to call me during the workday, that that just wasn't, you know, to be done, unless there was something I really needed to know. 
So I excused myself and asked somebody else to carry on the meeting for me, and I ran to my office, closed the door, and called my parents' number. And my mom answered. We called her Ma. So I said, hi, Ma, and we got to talking. And it turned out she was surprised to hear from me because they hadn't called me at all. But I was on the phone, so I talked to Dad, my father, Ma and Dad, um, and he read me a cute little story from Reader's Digest that was <laughs> about a little boy who had peed his pants. So we had a good chuckle over that, talked a minute more, and then I said, I love you, and he said, I love you too, and we hung up. So the next day was Saturday, and I was just putting around the house doing my chores, and my mom called, which wasn't all that unusual for a Saturday. And she told me that she and my father had gone to the movies together that morning, which was awesome because they had had a little rocky patch in their marriage, and they had reconciled. And my dad was a real character. He liked booze and broads and especially butter. He loved to eat butter. Um, so he, he was not in the best of health, but they, you know, they, they reconciled, and it was really nice that they had this time going to the movies together. But then she went on to say that after the movies, they had gone to our longtime favorite pizza place. It used to be way back in the day called the Cavalier. Now it was called Gentleman Jim's. And I grew up going there practically every weekend with my family. For one thing, the pizza was so great. It's a really unusual pizza that has kind of a buttery crust and a sweet tomato sauce. And instead of mozzarella cheese, they use Swiss cheese. Sounds weird, but it was so delicious and very addictive. So they had gone to Gentleman Jim's for lunch and sat down, ordered a pitcher of beer. And after they sat there a moment, um, my mother told me, my father looked across the table and said, you know, I don't feel really well. I'm going to go outside for a breath of fresh air. And then my father, Charles John Chick LaRue, stood up alive and fell down dead in the middle of this restaurant. And so my mom was calling to tell me that my father had died that morning. So I went down to Maryland for the funeral. I missed Barbara Bush's visit. Gentleman Jim sent a rubber tree plant to his condolence. <laughs> And I got back to Connecticut when all of that was over, and, and I went back to my office, and there on my desk was a lovely handwritten note from Barbara Bush, expressing her condolences and telling me that she really appreciated all the work I had done to prepare for her visit there. That was really lovely. I, of course, still have that note. So after I read that letter, I got to thinking. You know, it was just so weird that um, they... Uh, I had got that message to call home, and my parents hadn't called me. So I did a bit of checking around, and it turned out that that very same week that this all happened, the first week in January, a new intern had started working in the development office, and her name, of course, was Jennifer, and it was she who was supposed to have called home. So it's one of those little twists of fate in life, that little pink slip that we're so familiar with, gave me the opportunity one last time to talk to my dad and one last time to tell him I loved him and one last time to hear him tell me that he loved me. That's the last time. Thank you. Thank you to the most wonderful Jennifer LaRue. As Mark Twain said, I like a good story well told. That's the reason I'm sometimes forced to tell them myself. Tell your story at one of our live shows. Dates, themes, tickets, and swag are at marktwainhouse.org slash mouthoff. 
At that site, you'll also see all the other cool stuff Twain has going on, in addition to funny and really fascinating house tours. Twain's tradition of storytelling continues, with writing classes and workshops, chances to write in Mark Twain's library, and the popular Mark My Words series, where authors from around the world come to talk about how current issues are colliding with their work. Follow The Twain House on Facebook and sign up for the newsletter at marktwainhouse.org. The Mouth Off is hosted and produced by me, Kyone Wolf, with help from Jennifer LaRue. Learn about my other shows at kionewolf.com, on Twitter and Instagram at kionewolf, on Facebook at kionewolf Productions, and you can be a part of fueling all of this at patreon.com slash kionewolf. Imagine the story you'll tell about being a sponsor for the Mouth Off podcast. For rates, email mouthoffhartford at gmail.com. All right, till next time, whatever happens, make it a good story. Bye.